I think we think Jesus' miracles are different from the content of Jesus' miracles. Miracles are really cool things that show that he's really important, that he's, he's the son of God, right? And the content is, uh, is kind of just whatever happened as he moved through life. And I think that view of miracles is completely wrong. I think Jesus' miracles included the content in them. And when we understand that he could have done a miracle a day, but he didn't, that he did these things strategically and that there's content in them, there, that he, his miracles say something about who he is, what he came to do, I think we can better understand what's going on. I mean, think about it. If Jesus just wanted to do a miracle to prove who he was, the whole story of when, when Satan said, jump off this building, you know, go jump off the bridge and then I'll, I'll believe in you, um, Jesus is like, no. It's, I'm not here to just do a miracle just to show you who I am. But then later he does these miracles in a, and there's this content in it. He turned water into wine and basically showed that there's a difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. He made food for people and then, then he says the next day, I'm the manna sent down from heaven. I've been given to you by God so that um, you would have nourishment. I'm like that food. And, and he goes on and does miracle after miracle but there's always raising Lazarus from the dead and the whole idea of of being able to raise things from the dead and the resurrection and and so we get to this passage where he heals the man with the that's been born blind and there's content to it why did Jesus perform a miracle which is a sign for this guy born blind somebody that's just got one of those just simple minds say the obvious Say the obvious. What's that? That too, that's the miracle part. What's the content part? Yeah, the guy was blind, which isn't good. And that mattered to Jesus. And he says, look, let me bring glory to my father by doing this, but I'm going to show you something by making this blind man see that's, that's a part of my whole message. Does that make sense? It's a part of the calling. And so it's a fascinating thing as we get into this that um, he's having an argument with the shepherds of Israel. He's now all the way down in Jerusalem and he's not dealing with like the, the side guys out, out in the field. He's dealing with the head honchos and you've got a battle of authority going on. And authority like operates within traditions and values and things like that. And if we don't understand the traditions, we don't understand this battle going on. Okay? The Pharisees are in a tradition um, that goes way back. The samurai, I think this is fascinating, but samurai, um, when they would lose a battle and commit suicide, you guys know, you know samurais would, were the ones that would kind of commit suicide. They would actually cut open their bowels, their guts, um, because why? I mean, I used to think, wow, that's just gnarly and it proves their manhood or something, how they do that. But they believed in their theology that the soul was here in the guts and they were releasing their soul in battle on the battlefield and it was a thing of honor to die that way so in World War II when you study it there were times when Japanese would get uh, in a hopeless situation trapped etc and depending on probably the, the platoon or or that group of men or whatever, they would sometimes commit suicide and one of the ways they would do it is they'd take uh, grenades and hold them over their their stomachs now you'd watch that and you'd be like, why? 
But if you don't understand the tradition, see, you don't understand why. If you understand the tradition that this is where the soul resides, and if, it, if you're able to release it in the battle and gain honor that way, so now, oh, okay, I get it. I see what they're doing. Okay, the Pharisees are, are really guarding the law. Really guarding the law. Because Israel had been carted off hundreds of years earlier because they were not being faithful to what God had asked them to do. They came back from the land and these traditions kind of rose up to um, really be faithful to the law so that this wouldn't happen again. Fast forward a couple hundred years, the Romans now occupy the land. So what do you think these people think? They think that we have to be so perfect in following the law because this is ultimately what's going to have God come down and rescue us from the Romans to where we gain our, our independence again because that's how this whole thing works. So we really, really got to guard the law. That's their tradition. Okay? So the, um, use the big pen. So their focus is fidelity to the law. Okay? That's why they freak out when Jesus is, is kind of trashing their traditions. He's healing on the Sabbath, and they're going, you can't do that. You're you're violating the law, our laws, our traditions, and you can't do that. And we don't like your rebellious kind of attitude where you're pushing against the nice, tight, clean borders that we've got of how you're supposed to behave and what you're supposed to do to be righteous. What was Jesus' tradition? It's kind of like uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. Like the wicked witch knew the, the magic and, and Aslan knew the deep magic. You know what I mean? Jesus has a tradition too. What's his tradition? His tradition is this. The law is there for a purpose. Why did God give the law? To make, um, as like landmines, to make life difficult? I mean, that's what we're taught, like, somehow when we're in junior high and high school and we carry that into adult life, that God gives us laws to just make us miserable. And, you know, we just finally got to get over it and just put a frown on and just obey Him just so that God will be happy. I mean, subconsciously, isn't that kind of how we see it? Why is the stoplight there? Why is the yield sign there? Why do you tell your kids not to get into the medicine drawer and, and just take medicines wildly? Why are there rules? For your own, your own good. Yeah, your own protection. So Jesus comes along and he's saying, look, the law is, is second to the health of the people. These are the people that God created and that he loves and that have needs. And the law, the whole reason that was put there was so that they would know how to behave and to act and order their lives such that their relationship with God was intact and things would be good. But the law is a means to an end. You know that, that phraseology, means to the end. It serves the purpose. Going to the grocery store, we don't do for its own sake. We do it for the sake of getting to the grocery store. The law, we don't obey for its own sake. We obey it for the sake of being connected with God that it may go well with us. Okay, does that make sense? So the the Pharisees are serving this tradition. Jesus knows the deeper magic. 
All throughout Scripture, there's this, this trend and this, this tendency that, look, don't you understand? Just follow me, trust me, believe in me, because I know what's best. Now, what happens when you have authority? What happens when you have authority? And you have a worldview or a value system. Your authority serves your value system, doesn't it? When you have the ability to make the decisions or control things, what direction do you take all that control? You take it to what the tradition is or your value or your your number one goal or, or what you think the highest thing is. So how were the Pharisees using their authority? To elevate the law to the top. Right? So the law now becomes more important than people that the law was meant to serve. Jesus comes along, and I love how Jesus attacks the underlying things of, of what's going on. It's always about, like, the big picture, just how simple things are. Jesus comes along and says... Um, <laughs> No, it's about the people. That's what matters. I don't care about Sunday. I'll heal on Sunday um, anytime I feel like it. Sunday's not what matters. People are what matter. And so he comes into conflict with these Pharisees. Now listen to what he kind of does. End of John 9. End of John 9. We'll just pick it up in uh, verse 39. He heard that the Pharisees are like having like major Senate hearings about this man that was blind that now sees. And, and there's kind of like all this commotion about it. And Jesus hears about it. And I think he must have just laughed at like how ridiculous it is. And so he talks to the guy, but then he goes on and says this. For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. And some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? You know, like that guy was blind. What do you think we're blind too? And Jesus says, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Why? Because there's a hypocrisy going on that says, you're the ones in authority. You are supposed to be taking care of people. That's what you're supposed to use your influence for. Um, you know, I, I read it. I mentioned it last week. We're just going to jump to it. But in Deuteronomy chapter 17, and um, just, just because I can't keep secrets, I'm going to give you homework this week, first time ever. Now you know, but Deuteronomy 17, this is one of the homework assignments. God's talking about rules for the kings. And listen to what he says, starting verse 16, chapter 17, verse 16. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself, or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again, and he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver or gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law. 
taken from that of the priests who are Levites. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord as God and follow carefully all the words of these laws and these decrees, and not consider himself better than his brothers, and turn from the, li- the, the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. What does all that mean? When you find a leader, this leader is not supposed to use that authority to benefit himself. Now, so here's how we're going to make that happen. When he becomes king in leadership, I want him to write down, copy from the scrolls, the whole law by hand. Why? What does that prove? It proves he's literate. And he needs to be literate because how can a guy that doesn't know the laws of God promote and teach the laws of God. So I want him to copy in the presence of the priests the whole law so that they can see this. And then once he's got it, I want him to read it every single day. Wrestle with it every single day. Just absorb it every single day because what's going to happen, he's going to begin to understand the big picture. And so when little different things come up that there's no formula for, he's going to understand the heartbeat of God. So Jesus comes, and in this period we don't have kings, but we have leaders. Same thing. And, and so these people are supposed to use their authority for the good of the rest. And so Jesus is so baffled, he keeps coming to him and saying, how come you don't know this? How come you don't understand the scriptures? It is written. It is written. And what he's basically saying is, you should know, it should be like in you, seeped in there, the whole heartbeat of God that God cares about people. That should be there. And instead, you're like making it about rules where you win. And you, you get, your life gets better. And you get stuff. And you get power. And so you're using your authority to, to serve yourself. And you should be using your authority to help people. And so these people that are in authority, Jesus is like, you're blind. And I have come to judge you. Jesus immediately pivots right here at the end of John 9 to a very well-known chunk of Scripture in John 10, which is the Good Shepherd. But listen to what he does. He quotes Ezekiel. So one of these passages that should be steeped into people. Lost my place marker. There it is. So this is the kind of thing that these shepherds should have known. But in Ezekiel 34, hundreds of years earlier, God judges the shepherds of Israel. Now, shepherd is a common motif for, for um, leaders in the ancient Near East. Uh, the Babylonian um, God, it like, sounds like Murdoch, but he's like the shepherd of the other gods. And the kings of different ancient Near East tribes were, were referred to as shepherds. God refers to himself as the shepherd of the nation of Israel. In Psalm 23, we see God as kind of the shepherd of individual people. So the shepherd motif is all throughout Scripture. In Ezekiel, we see it, and the prophet speaks for God, and he says this. I mean, listen to this. This is what the sovereign Lord says in verse 2 of chapter 34. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals. 
but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick. And you have not bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. Begin to understand a little bit of why Jesus was always at the religious leaders. The religious leaders were using the authority that was supposed to serve the people, and they were benefiting themselves. And Jesus comes, and he binds up a sick person. He, he heals a blind man, which ought to be obviously good. There's a man born blind. That's not good. I fixed that. That is good. And they can't even see that. So those that claim to see and speak for God, the leaders, the teachers, they can't even see when God is doing what God does, which is take care of his people. So for judgment I came, says Jesus, that those that that claim to see will become blind. I'm going to put a dividing line and cast them to one side, and this is the right side. And those that are ignorant or those that are humble or those that are the victims or those that are the outsiders or those that are teachable, God, I'm lost, teach. Those people that claim not to see, I'm going to help them to see. I'm going to start with something new. I'm going to grab a bunch of fishermen from Galilee. I'm going to write a new covenant. I'm, I'm going to take new wine and pour it into new wineskins so that you guys will understand what you always should have understood, which is God cares about people. And if people matter to God, people should matter to us. So Jesus pivots and he, he brings this language of Ezekiel in and in John 10, he kicks it off this way. And let's read it. He says, I tell you the truth, verily, verily, I say unto you, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name. He cares about them and leads them out. When he has brought all of his own out, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will run, uh, but they will never run, follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Man, we're talking about a man born blind. We're talking about authority. Now all of a sudden you're talking about sheep. What's going on, Jesus? Jesus says again, I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. All who came before me, going back to Ezekiel, is talking about the shepherds that came before, but they didn't take care of the sheep. Does that make sense? So all those that were supposed to lead or take care of or shepherd um, these, these people that matter to God, they didn't do it, and they were thieves, they were robbers. They, they were looking for their own good. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I will sacrifice for your good. I will die for your good. The hired hand 
who doesn't really care or feel any ownership for the sheep. He does not, he is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. And so when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Again, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. I'll just leave it there. I want to back up again, though, to verse 10. The thief comes only to, to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. We usually take John 10 and we just read it by itself. Here's John 10. Jesus is a good shepherd. The thief comes only to kill and destroy. Well, who's the thief? Ah, oh, probably the devil. I don't know. I mean, the opposite of Jesus. Um, but Jesus is the opposite of the devil, and he comes um, to give us life and, and die for We kind of reduce it to a simplistic thing. The verse that shows us that Jesus is still talking about the blind man, if you fast forward all the way down to the bottom, listen to what Jesus said. Uh, well, listen to what the people say. Jesus stops. The people are like, oh, he's a demon-possessed guy. He's raving mad. Um, why should we listen to him? The others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Book ends it. When Jesus is talking about being a good shepherd and helping out the sheep, he's still in this argument with the religious leaders about his miracle of healing a blind man. This is in the context of that story. And the people he's saying are wrong are the leaders and the teachers that are, that are not really understanding that God cares about people. They're about traditions and rules and difficult things. And so Jesus always talks about heaping up these weights that weigh people down. They're about honor and glory for themselves. Jesus talks also about they'll travel halfway around the world to make a disciple that agrees with the way they think, but they won't lift a hand to help a person in need right there. So Jesus is against these people, right, in this whole kind of argument. And he says, these people I've come to judge. See, the thing about grace and love is that it needs judgment to exist. What do you mean by that? Um, I mean, what do I mean by that? Um, if we didn't know that this is really bad, would the fact that we're being rescued from it or forgiven for something seem really good? If, if bad doesn't matter, how can good really feel like good news? If we're not drowning, the sight of a lifeboat isn't really that exciting. I've seen lifeboats on TV. It doesn't really get me excited. So, so grace looks greater when you understand what not grace is. Jesus came to judge that these people would be shown for what they were, that they would be wrong, that they would be cast aside, that they would be rejected, and that these people that really needed the help from the beginning would all of a sudden now find that in him. Isn't that a fascinating thing? We, we know this intuitively, but we don't talk about it a lot. We know it in our guts, but then when we talk about judgment, we're like, oh, there's no place for that. You know, but we know it in our guts. I heard a, an Irish guy give a joke recently, and he's talking about in Ireland, there's this um, parish priest that comes huffing and puffing up to this door of these people one night, and he knocks on the door, and he says, I, the, the guy down the street, uh, I don't, I, I'm not going to do accents because I can't, but 
the guy on the street's about to lose his house tomorrow. He's going to lose his home. He's going to be thrown out on the street. You know, he doesn't have money for the rent. We have to do something. We have to do something. And the people are like, oh, my gosh, that's horrible. So they all come into the house, and they run around the house, and the cookie jar and the mattress, and they cobble together this money to give to the priest. And like, here, take this. Save the guy. Keep him from being thrown out on the street so that he can stay in his house. And the priest takes it. He's like, oh, you're good people. And he's about to leave. And they say, well, how did you know he was going to get kicked out? Oh, I'm the landlord. There are things that are wrong. There's, there's, there's an irony to that story. <laughs> that this priest can't be the guy doing this. But, but by the very nature of who he is, he should be doing this. But we get to talking about theology. And we get to talking about this and that. We get to seeing like this and... and Nothing else really matters. Our days and our weeks get filled with our wranglings and, and we get absorbed with it and it's just more and more and more and we go deeper and deeper and deeper and pretty soon we forget that there's people all around us that matter to God. And our job is to help those people. There's another thing I learned from John 10, and, and I'd never really seen it before. Um, this, this crazy week, I mean, I literally feel like there's four hours worth of stuff that we could have talked about. And I didn't think you guys would go for it. So I just prayed and prayed and prayed, God, I don't know how to navigate this. There's literally four hours worth of stuff. And then all of a sudden, this one thing came to me. I was like, man, I never really realized that. When we think this passage, John 10, has everything to do with us, and we always assume that, don't we? We're just ego-centered people. Jesus is the good shepherd. He's come to give me a great life. I like that story. What's not to like? When we stand back and realize that it's an argument about the, the overall purposes for, for leaders, religious leaders, that we begin to realize Jesus is providing a metric by which we can evaluate good, godly leadership, right? If we're supposed to lead like him, Jesus came and he's the incarnation, this is what he did. If we're supposed to lead like him, and if we're now the body that's supposed to do like him, and if this is how he defines it, um, they may have life and have it to the full, guess what? That's a metric. We should see the same thing, right? So let me change gears for a second. We, um, we jumped into Africa to be involved because we cared and we learned a lot, much through our good friend D'Ambrosi and several trips that we've taken over to Africa. And it's absolutely amazing. And, and the words that still ring in my mind, um, short, uh, the words that ring in my mind the most are, are words spoken by, by my friend Emmanuel. And Emmanuel came and preached for several uh, weeks in December here at Antioch. Okay? He's a pastor from Burundi. Um, born and raised there, but went and, and studied in England. And he's one of the sharpest people you'll ever meet. And I'm there meeting him in a, in a great context, and we're becoming friends. And he says to me, he says, look, this is what the American church needs to hear. Stop messing up my country. <laughs> what? Stop messing up my country. Well, how are we messing up your country? Here's what the American church, without realizing it's doing over in Africa. 
you can work your whole life as a pastor, um, shepherding your people, caring for your people, barely eke out an existence, okay? The guy down the street can put in no work, no energy, have no real credibility with his own community, but just play the lottery. And when he strikes the lottery, he now becomes an instant celebrity, not only in his own village, but half of the country. What is the lottery? Let me back up. If I played the lottery, if I said to you, hey, I've got a great strategy, um, forget all the things that we typically do at Antioch. I've got a better idea. I'm going to play the lottery. I'm going to use your tithe money to play the lottery. Um, and I, I, I feel lucky. We're going we're gonna to hit it. We're going to roll the dice, and at some point we're going to hit it. When we hit it, boy, will it be great. What would you guys think of that? It's just that is completely wrong. What's the lottery over in Africa? It's kick, scratch, crawl, do whatever you need to do to meet an American pastor. And if you can do that, you've, you've, you've just hit jackpot. You've won the lottery. Because he's going to instantly be filled with such compassion, run back to his church that's filled with compassion, and those people together are going to send over money that to them is a little bit of a sacrifice. But in that country, complete, it'd be like if someone came and dropped um, $10 million on a church in Bend. It would totally disrupt the ecosystem, wouldn't it? Absolutely, completely throw the whole ecosystem into disarray. People in that guy's church would stop tithing. Why do I need to tithe? Look at all the money he has. All of a sudden, in that country and in that culture, he's a political influential figure as well, involved in politics, because now he's like a wealthy, like, maid. He's, he's a made man. And, and they go to him, and now he's a political figure. And all these things begin to happen that had nothing to do with character, had nothing to do with calling, had nothing to do with work. It had to do with playing the lottery. There's a better way to get involved in Africa. With the whole World Relief Next thing, what we're trying to do is learn how do we actually get involved in places. And, and I don't want to say that every connection between American pastor and African pastor necessarily is bad. What I'm saying is that the Africans themselves have talked to me and said, look, you're destroying our countries because nobody's working. They're just playing the lottery here. And that's not healthy, okay? So I'm not saying it just because there's a connection is necessarily bad. What I'm saying, though, is that we, if we're going to be the, the body of Christ, the incarnation, going into these places, our goal ought to be what? That they may have life and have life to the full. That's something that we can evaluate, isn't it? Like we can look and say, gee, is this working? Is it doing more help than, than harm? Like, is, is, are things changing? Are communities coming together? Or is it fracturing communities? Are churches, like, hating, hating each other more? Or are pastors actually coming together? Those are things that we can evaluate, but what we typically tend to do in America, and, and we're just learning, is we begin to evaluate it from our side. We need to do missions. And so the doing is the value. Rather than those Congolese need us. And so when we go over there, now all of a sudden we can say, you needed us, did that help or did that hurt? 
And let's learn from our mistakes because what we're really here to do is to help you. We don't need you, you need us. And it's a complete, complete paradigm shift. And I could go back to Ezekiel 34, but it would ruin your homework. But you need to go back and read about justice there. You want to know the funny irony? The irony of why Israel was really taken captive? And you can read Isaiah for this. Israel was really taken captive, yeah, because they disobeyed God, but more specifically because they didn't do what? They didn't promote justice or stick up for the oppressed. Isaiah says unequivocally that I am carting you off because you did not do what I told you to do for the people that are outside of your immediate sphere of influence. You did not take care of the oppressed. You did not speak up for justice. Yeah, you broke the law, but the law you broke was that people matter to me, and you, when you have influence or leadership or resources or whatever, are actually supposed to advocate and help these people. And when you don't, you're just thinking about yourself or your own little tribe. That's not reflective of the kind of God that I am. We're all in this together. Not just your little clique or your little tribe. We are all in this together. And I like people who do good. Here's the thing, the other thought that came to me this week, and I was like, man, it blew me away. Here's, here's something we do in at least the Protestant church. We say you're saved by Jesus Christ. How do most people think they're saved? Because I'm a good person. You talk to most anybody, yeah, you're going to go to heaven, yeah, because I'm a good person. And we are like, no, it's not because you're a good person. It's because you know Christ. And we get frustrated at the good person answer, so what do we start to do? We start to do something really interesting, and I've never really thought about it before. But we start to say, good is bad. And Jesus is good. Good is bad because, man, that's a headache and you're wrong and that's not the right answer. Jesus is good. Are you tracking with me? I, don't th- I mean, I don't think I'm making it up. I actually think subconsciously we begin to go, ah, good is always getting in the way. Good is the problem. Good is bad. It's another one of those ironies if you didn't catch it, okay? Good is good. Good is good. Jesus is better but good is good. There's a difference between the thief that comes in and destroys and the person who's out there trying to love on people and do good. Good is good. Bad is bad. Jesus reigns supreme over all. Good is not bad. Let me, let me take you to Acts. It's like my eyes were open to something really fascinating this week in Acts. So here's Peter. Peter gets called to... Peter gets, Paul, uh, Peter gets called to this Roman centurion's house, not a Jew. The Messiah did not come for those people. The Messiah came for the Jews, right? Peter goes to this guy's house, and listen to what Peter says in uh, Acts 10, verse 34. Acts 10, verse 34. Peter begins to speak, and he says this, I now realize how true it is 
that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men and women from every nation who fear him and do what is right. This, this blew me away. Peter walked up on these people and he says, God loves these people of a different nation that don't really even know him yet. They know like a, a resemblance of him or an idea of him. But God loves people from every nation that fear him and do what is right. God loves good people. Then what does Peter go on to do? He goes on to share with them about Jesus Christ. See, good is not bad. Good is good. People matter to God. People should matter to us. The whole social gospel idea of, like, we're two doctors fighting over terminology when there's someone dying right there is an irony. And Christians are fighting over whether we should give time and energy to love people or help needy people rather than maybe try and share the gospel. And I'm saying those things aren't pitted against each other. Justice is always right. It's universal. Love is always right. It's universal. It's amazing how it says like, uh, I think it's with the fruit of the Spirit, says against such things there is no law. There's never a time when love or joy or peace or patience are wrong. There's no rule that God said that says love is wrong unless it has this to it. If it's love, it's love, it's right. And then we go on to share about Jesus. See, good is not bad and Jesus is good. Good is good and then we get to share Jesus on top of that. We've got to get away from this, this idea that Love is sometimes wrong if it doesn't have the gospel with it. Or justice is a waste of time if we're not going and doing this. And we don't understand that it's not about the rules. It's about the heart. And Peter, I mean, it's amazing to me. God loves these people. And then he shares the gospel. Uh, The band's going to come up. And um, and they're going to play special song for us, but I want to try and boil it down to this thought. Here's another irony that I think exists. We think Christianity is like, you know those girls that twirl two ropes at the same time? You know what I'm talking about? You ever seen that? They're twirling two ropes at the same time, and, and, and the people are like standing there, and they're like trying to figure out when to jump in, Right? When do I jump in? When do I jump in? When do I jump in? This is very complicated, right? And that's the way we treat Christianity. I come to church on Sundays. I read books. I'm just, I'm trying to, I'm trying to time it here. I'm trying to figure it out. And as soon as it becomes a little bit easier or a little more clear, I'm in. And here's the idea. Christianity is going to always be messy. We're always going to be looking to God going, I don't know. I'm doing the best I can. <laughs> I mean, help me out here, but your, highs, your ways are higher than my ways, and I'm a little bit lost, and please teach me. I don't have it all figured out. Christianity will always be a little bit messy, and here's the, the, worst, the worst part about it. Christianity doesn't get easier. It gets harder. It's a tractor pull. It starts easy, gets harder. Look at John the Baptist's life, Paul's life, Jesus' life, Peter's life. Um, you just name it, Moses' life. Christianity starts at the easy place, and then it gets harder. So if you want to do the Christian life, 
you're already doing it or not doing it. Because today will go by, and if you're not doing anything, you're not doing the Christian life. And if you're doing the best you can with all this mess, you're doing the Christian life. And if you sit there for years, you totally misunderstand the Christian life. The Christian life is you just barrel into the ropes and do the best you can, starting now and moving forward. And guess what? It's going to get a lot harder as the years go on. That's why Jesus always says, look, I'm not offering you a product to add to what you already have. I'm saying give up everything you already have and take this one thing. It's that simple. Last week I shared this quote. C.S. Lewis said, die before you die, it's your only chance. You can't hitch up to a tractor pull that's going to just bog down more and more if you're looking out for your own self to grow and grow and grow. It's saying that the supreme good in my life is going to come from my connection with God, being involved in what he's doing. I'll choose that even if life, the circumstances get harder and harder. So the only way I can sign up for that kind of a mission is if I'm willing to die now before I die. And that's our only chance. We, we can't time it. We can't wait for it. Um, like Deuteronomy 17. You just start reading the Bible. If you want something else, we've got a baptism coming up in two, three weeks. If you want something else, man, just find somebody in the world that, that's completely out of your circle and just figure out how to love them. It's messy, but it's about the heart. It's about being engaged. Let's pray. Father, Um, it's amazing how with a sanitized um, kind of goal for religion that we always want to reduce it down and simplify it and give formulas and give rules and give black and whites that Jesus would come as a carpenter and as a shepherd into a town called Galilee and hang out with, with rough country boys. Um, it's not about precision, it's not about it being sanitary, it's not about it being easy, it's not about it being convenient. Father, it's about a world that you created that we're not throwing away, we're somehow being involved in this thing coming to fruition. When we die, we don't go to never, never land like the Greeks thought. It says in the end of scripture that the new heavens and the new earth will come down and this will be what it was always supposed to be. This life is not trash. This life is messed up and we get to be a part of reconciling the created to the creator. We get to be involved in helping people find you and in justice prevailing that the things that are broken would be fixed. We get to do it locally here. We get to do it around the world. We get to do it in our own families. And God, I pray that your spirit would do it in our own hearts, that you would sanctify us. And I know that it will only happen if we say yes, if we commit, if we go all in. And I just pray that this church would not be about entertainment. It would not be about egocentric ideas of religion. It would be all about dying to ourselves that we might live to you, that it would be about throwing away our own personal dreams, that you could give us a new vision of how we can be used by you in this world. Father, it's just radical, but I just pray you give us enough faith, an ounce of faith, that we just dive into that mess and trust that you're going to work it all out. Let us embrace the messiness of it, God, and we just pray that in Christ's name.